Okay. Well, thank you for coming, uh, especially at this point, the term and the year when everybody is running on fumes. Um, so hopefully, I think today's talk will revitalize us and rejuvenate us a little bit. But, um, but thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to shake up the format just a little bit. Instead of giving a response after Joel McSweeney and Johannes Gorenson speak, instead I'm going to give a slightly longer introduction. So I'll speak for about 10 minutes and then um, switch things over to them, and then we'll follow up with a lively Q&A. Um, so without any further delay, I'll just start. Uh, one of the early taglines of Action Books, the press founded by Joelle McSweeney and Johannes Gorenson was, and I quote, we want a poetry that goes too far. Since 2005, Action Books has been committed to bringing its readers to and beyond the extremes. Its commitment to translation has been a crucial component of this project. Translation, McSweeney has said, is, and I quote, two art words crammed into the place of one, a dizzy oversaturation, a virtuosic double act, two con artists in syncope. From the onset, Action Books has avoided, with regard to translation, the conventional language and imagery of its reception, specifically tropes of accommodation and the entrenched binary of foreignizing and domesticating translation. The works that Action Books publishes, the texts that McSweeney and Gorenson themselves write and translate, are not invested in coaxing and bringing foreign texts into English, giving them a home there, asking them to play nice and to clean up after themselves. Instead, they produce and publish translations in English, but in an English, or rather multiple and multiplying Englishes, that are mangled, warped, abused, and stretched. This is the kind of translation that we broadly characterize as creative. Creative is still, though, a very comfortable, reassuring, and cozy word, and it mitigates the necessary brutality and violence at the heart of the practices of translation that McSweeney and Gorenson enact and promote. In his preface to Remainland, his translations of the Swedish poet Ose Berg, Gorenson concludes with the observation that Berg, quote, sets the entire language in motion and shows how every language may be foreign, even to its native speaker, unquote. If the English of his translations is uncomfortable and strange, it is because this is how language is activated and experienced in the original. And Gornson further writes, rather than writing a faithful translation of text so unfaithful to its own native language, I hope to bring into English this unfaithful translation ambiance. And that he writes in his afterword to his translation of Berg's Transfer Fat. These comments bookend a translation practice that doesn't seek to repair or remedy, but rather sticks its fingers right into the open wounds of the original language and expands and infects them. In the deformation zone of their exuberant collaboration on translation, Gorenson invokes the wound as a site of and made of translation. He writes, there are poetry and translation projects that are interested in this ghostly seance space of corpses and wounds. These are the projects that are born to lose that make a home there, that make a text there, that stoke the wound, that stoke it. The wound of language, Gorenson writes, created by the act of translation results in a poem. The question and possibility of how, quote unquote, every language may be foreign is a thread that runs through the wide ranging work of McSweeney and Gorenson, which includes collections of poetry, translation, essays, blog posts, hybrid novels, plays, and other outputs that can't be easily identified, categorized, and commodified. McSweeney's poetry collection, The Red Bird, inaugurated the 2001 Fence Modern Poets series. Fence, an independent American publisher, has supported her work for over a decade, 
including the hybrid novels Flett and Nyland, The Sarcographer, and more recently, the 2012 collection Percussion Grenade. McSweeney's play Dead Youth or the Leaks won the first Leslie Scalapino Award for Innovative Women Performance Writers in 2014, and an excerpt of her libretto on the trial of Oscar Pistorius appeared last summer in the White Review. Her translations of the Aeneid, which translates the ruins of Virgil's Troy into the North American landmass, remains unfortunately in progress, but tantalizing morsels of it have appeared in various journals. With Gorenson, McSweeney is also the founder of the collaborative multi-authored blog, Montevideo, where over the years she has contributed posts on translation, the visual arts, film, and the <coughs> necro-pastoral. And some of this work has given shape to her recent collection of essays, The Necro-Pastoral Poetry Media Occults, published by the University of Michigan Press as part of its Poets on Poetry series. I've mentioned Gorenson's translations of Berg, one of several modern and contemporary Swedish and Finland Swedish poets Gorenson has translated into English. And I'll add to those titles the collections Dark Matter and With Deer, as well as Ideals Clearance by Henry Parland and Colabert Orbital by Johan Jonsson. With Tarpaulin Sky Press, he has published the collections Haute Surveillance in 2013, Entrance to a Colonial Pageant in which we all begin to intricate in 2011, and most recently, The Sugar Book, which came out this year. The poet Kim Hysoon has described Gorenson's own writing as, and I quote, poetry that has smashed the boundaries of genre. But the word poetry doesn't contain the delirious, exciting mix of genres that he and McSweeney activate. In Dear Ra, A Story in Flinches, a kind of epistolary novel published in 2008, the protagonist, also named Johannes, informs his recipient, and I quote, my name is Johannes, my toys are sick, but I'm gonna make something out of my life. <laughs> that doesn't wrap things together, but it approximates how I read their work. In an interview with Columbia Poetry Reviews, McSweeney was asked to describe her creative process. My process, she replied, is to collect phrases and yoke them by violence together, forcing them into such extreme pressures that they buckle and release unholy noises. But what does it mean to yoke phrases and words together by violence? What does this do to language? Is there some organic way that words hold together, some natural normative grammar that this kind of process undermines? In the same interview, McSweeney talks about her interest in extremophiles, creatures that live in environments that otherwise would seem inhospitable to life. For example, certain microbes that can survive extreme cold, fish that live in extreme ocean depths in a state of blindness, bacteria that thrive in extreme heat. And what of the language of and in this extreme? Are there words like extremophiles that survive in extreme juxtapositions, extreme punning, extreme polysemy, extreme intertextuality? And what does this kind of extremity look like? How does it feel on the tongue? How does it sound to the ear and how does it translate? Translation, McSweeney and Gorenson have demonstrated consistently and relentlessly in their work is such an extreme and it pushes toward and beyond extremes. But translators generally know this. The moment that a word begins that movement into and away from another language, it faces, enters, and attempts to cross that space that the Canadian poet and translator Anne Carson has described as, and I quote, that space between the word you're at and the word you can't get to, end quote. This gap is lawless. It has no rules, no map, no compass. But isn't the act of writing, as Gorenson indicated in the material I quoted earlier, also tempted to push <coughs> readers to this gap? 
Consider the following poem by the Israeli poet Meir Wieseltier, translated into English by Shirley Kaufman. I'll read it. Take poems, but don't read them. Do violence to this book. Spit on it, kick it, wring its neck. Throw this book in the sea to see if it can swim. Hold it over a gas stove to see if it doesn't burn. Nail it, saw through it to see if it resists. This book is a paper rag, letters like flies, and you are a rag of flesh. You eat dust, ooze blood, stare at it, snooze. And that's the end of the poem. In Hebrew, to read, likro, is also to name. The problem with reading, Wieseltier implies, is not unlike the problem of naming, in that reading, like naming, contains and gives order to a poem, or at least tries to. A poem that can be read, can be categorized, commodified, and tamed. Instead, Wieseltier calls for new modes of reading and misreading, or kind of anti-reading, that literally and materially open, wound, and decompose the text. The demands for fidelity, obedience, and lawfulness that persist in practices and critiques of translation come back to the expectation that translated texts hold together in the act of reading, something which Wieseltier discourages as do McSweeney and Gorenson. In their essay, Manifesto of the Disabled Text, McSweeney and Gorenson begin with the observation that discomfort with a translated text is discomfort with a disabled text. But the text can't stand on its own, but something is lost, ruined, missing, etc." end quote. But this discomfort also calls attention to the desire to repair something that is perceived to be broken or imperfect in the original text. So when translations like Gorenson's translations of Berg or Don Mi Choi's translations of Kim Hai Soon, which will be discussed later in the seminar, produce and reproduce their own wounds, they are, quote, foreignizing the original, a term that in effect labels translation as an unwelcome migrant. When in fact, as McSweeney argues in De Deformation Zone, this is the kind of slavishness, as she names it, that gums our ability to really know where anything starts and stops. And so I'll stop there and invite Joel McSweeney and Johannes Gorenson to start. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My, well, I wrote down some ideas about the deformation zone and what has interested me lately using the deformation zone. Um, I have to admit that this is a, might be like an American-centric view. It might be like in England, everybody's super interested in translation, but it. Everything I write, it comes against the background of the fact that in America, uh, you know, t translations are very marginalized. So that's like an unspoken argument here. And lately, what I've been really interested in is, is how uh, the anxiety of influence of translations and uh, how this is one way of this urge to quarantine the translation. For example, uh, Adriana mentioned Kim Hesun. And in Book Forum, there was a review a couple of months ago that said that Joelle and I are sensationalistic because we don't take proper account of her context in South Korea, uh, where we would see that it's really a, a very nice and stable critique. We like wallow in the, we immorally wallow in it sensationalistically. Or at, um, in the US, there's something called the AWP every year, which is this huge conference the writers go to. And there's a pretty good panel by Paul Ceylon, the Romanian Jewish poet. And the first question in the Q&A was, how can we make sure that young American poets are not improperly influenced by Ceylon's poetry without truly understanding it? And I realized that this is, something, this is like an anxiety, that 
brought up to a comical level and anxiety that I sent in so much of the discussions about translation in the US literature. And this, again, this might not be a thing for you guys in England, but uh, I suspect it might be. Um, and so then this is sort of trying to think about that and uh, against this background anti-translation. Huh? Um, so for me, this in a seemingly innocent question invokes many of the problems one encounters when dealing with translation in American literary culture. The threat of the foreign is time after time portrayed as a problem of false, improper, counterfeit, or shallow influence. I still do this, uh, I don't know if you're, this is like a 90s thing. Um, the foreign poet is seen as a threat because he or she will influence the young American poets without them gaining proper understanding of the work. Why would this be a particular problem of translated poets and not American poets? It might be best to begin by considering proper influence, which would be patrilinear, based on a model of national literature, progress based on deep understanding of predecessors facilitated by proper education in the methods of reading, as well as the canonical writers worth studying. In the conventional Bloomian model of translation, the son of influence, the son wrestles with the father's poetry in order to create his own new poems that are both part of the tradition and worthy as new poems. The translated poet is dangerous because he or she comes from a foreign tradition and a foreign country, and without the proper understanding or the canonical training of those contexts, the young become vulnerable, and so is the young. The young are always vulnerable, which means I'm not vulnerable anymore, so I can say this. Um, young becomes vulnerable to kind of shallow influence. They may fall under the influence, as under the influence of a drug, and won't be able to be to properly understand. The foreign is like a drug. It allows the poems to become pure art, poetry without knowledge. Another way of seeing this is that proper understanding is needed to resist influence itself, to maintain control and agency. To rephrase Bloom's classic study, discussions about translation foreground and anxiety about influence. So what's so dangerous about influence? And here I quote Joyelle, I hope you don't mind. Uh, Joyelle said this in a talk she gave a couple of years ago. It seems to me that a discussion of literary influence would benefit from an effort to think outside these structures and strictures. I'm for thinking of influence in terms of the dead metaphors of flow, flux, fluidity, and fluctuation, saturation, and separation inherent in the term influence itself. Influence as total inundation with art, inundation with a fluctuating, oscillating, unbearable, sublime, inconsistent, and forceful fluid. And so without the proper context, without the, you know, the true learning, translation threatens to take us into this fluxing, convulsing space of influence, threatens to bring us under the influence. Indifference to the traditional models of dealing with translation, whether to ignore the translation process by domesticating the foreign, or to emphasize its foreignness in the Venusian foreignizing approach that Adriana mentioned. Uh, all these men tend to stabilize the interaction between, between different literatures. It's, I always find it really peculiar, for example, the Venuti, who's supposed to be such an activist for translation, basically thinks that translation is so absolutely impossible that the only thing it can accomplish is to show its own impossibility, to remind us Anglo-Americans that we can understand the original. I mean, that's the basic, that's, that's the idea behind the foreignizing translation. 
The major point of the deformation zone is that it wants to open up the influence of art and to emphasize precisely those points of contact where the medium of writing or art becomes convulsive, sensationalistic, volatile. The deformation zone is a model in which the poem or the story is not a pristine original which should remain in some traditional model of a stable original context or authorship, but a zone in which a myriad of contexts can take shape, cross-national, intergenre, cross-media. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how I see this in my process of translating Osabai, the Swedish poet. But also, I've also been thinking about the, another aspect of this that I want to mention, and that is I've been thinking about this idea of translation having to do with communication and media theory. Um, in his book, Speaking into the Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, by John Durham Peters. Anybody read this? Uh, so he, there he talks about how the modern idea of communication is about the bringing together of interiorities and that as soon as this model of communication comes about, it's a failure of communication. As soon as you have communication, you have a failure of communication. Uh, the very thing that makes something interior to you makes it impossible to communicate. So therefore you have T.S. Eliot, for example, uh, with his inability to, to communicate his, uh, deep feelings. Peters traces a history of this model of communication all the way back to Plato, Phaedo, in which Socrates, Socrates condemns writing for being sensationalistic in its spreading of rhetoric outside the immediacy of the direct relationship of dialogues, and to the Christian idea of the spirit as the word made flesh, where the flesh is always uh, an imperfect, should, has to be a perfectly translated spirit or else evil. So I hope you can begin to see how the anxiety of translations are largely the same as the anxieties of communication. Poetry has in modern times been defined as that which cannot be translated, it's impossible. The impossibility of translation, like the failure of communication, becomes a key to understanding poetry itself. It's what's lost in translation. Before there's, <coughs> before there's successful communication, there's failed communication. Before there's a successful translation, there's always the impossibility of translation. As with communication, the impossibility of translation is about asserting the interiority of the poems, that there is this stable meaning which is lost when it becomes taken out of its proper context and becomes improper influence on those poor young American poets. Uh, this interiority is not just meaning, but training in a national literary tradition and, con and the continual assertion of an original context which is continually invoked to protect the poem against the improper influence of sensationalistic translations. These sensationalistic translations function the way writing did to Socrates, the way mass media did to Eliot. They are licentious and lacking of interiority. They're kitsch. They're too much. They're sensationalistic. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how um, I, I am thinking of these Osabai translations in these terms, um, <coughs> so that it's not just that communication is this vehicle for a word made flesh, but it actually matters, the media itself matters. Uh, when I, and a lot of my thinking, and also Joel's thinking about translation, comes just out of Osabai's work and how we've translated it, and it's a really uh, perverse use of Swedish, of, and it's a lot of our ideas actually comes out of a very practical, boring thing of sitting down and making a translation and seeing how possible or impossible it is. Um, and in fact, Deformation Zone is one of her poems. It's called Deformation Zone. 
Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the 2001 book Force La Fête, which I translated as Transfer Fat. The very title of the book tells you that it's about communication that foregrounds the medium. The language in Berg's book becomes a transfer of fat. I translated Fosla, which elsewhere has been translated as carry, or some other words like this, as transfer to bring the F consonants into the title, the sound, the body, and the Christian model of communication being an, as important as any kind of semantic meaning. Fosla suggests transferring, but it doesn't tell us where it's going. It might be a command, transfer fat, or it might be a segment of a larger sentence, I want to transfer some fat, or something like that. Um, in many ways, it's about translation, but it also enacts translation. Is it my turn yet, Mama? Totally. In five minutes. Yeah. Papa will, Papa will make a little rooster sound. Okay. Um, so a lot of, in this poem, a lot of it is actually, actually are translations, where she takes stuff from like English articles about string theory, for example, which she doesn't understand at all. I don't know if anybody does, but, but she doesn't pretend to have the proper knowledge of it. And it, it gets mashed up with a lot of sort of fairy tale imagery and very physical imagery. So here you have one, the hair critter, Hochpalt. You can, you can see how the string theory gets totally perverted by her poetry. The hair conducts string that attracts the opposite tone. The string vibrates dimensions that will crook the instrument. Hearing has a strung time, twitches faster than the string strikes. Harpy births child, pilots child across field of the as of yet unprepared. Uh, <coughs> Here the language of string theory, vibrations, conductors, tones, instruments are brought into co-influence with a very physical language of animals and birth imagery. This is a book about being pregnant. So that the strings are not actually like these abstract strings anymore. They might be like the strings of giving birth activities. Um, the bringing in or transferring the fat of the foreign language of string theory signals a totally different attitude to the foreign than can be seen in the type of anxiety that I was talking about earlier. She doesn't have the proper understanding of string theory, but she lets herself be influenced by textures and associations the convulsions that occur when she brings it into her poems. You can see this, the result encapsulated in the word vibrates, I think. It was like you take the word vibrate, but you add some extra letters, and then the word itself begins to vibrate. Um, then there's a whole bunch of, I mean, the whole book is full of these really different way words are set in motion as, as Adriana mentioned earlier, so you have a word like vol, for example, which can mean a whole bunch of things if it's taken out of its proper syntactic contact. It can be a choice, can be an election, but it can be a whale. So you get a word like mama vol, could be mom choice, could be mom whale. Every choice is the same choice. Alla vol is mama vol, could be every, every whale is the same whale. Um, To make matters even complicated, there are all these neologisms in the book. So like Hormjölk, you see that, the third line? I'm on, on the poem Mamaval, everybody see that? The third is Hormjölk, that's a weird word that's just put together out of two different words, Hormjölk. <coughs> Hor by itself can mean a hair, or it can also mean have. So it could be have milk, 
or hair milk. And these certain words like whale and hairs and choices get mingled up into a lot of different uh, neologisms. So at one point you get um, words like valingelskal, uh, whale brood shell, but elsewhere you have, for example, Fittstela rullbans fett flood. That's one word. Kantstiff loop track fat flood. Uh, <coughs> or you have, and after a while you read this neologism and it kind of teaches you that in the standard Swedish comp, st standard Swedish words are often made up of two words that are jammed together. So when you get to a word like späckhuggaren, which I have here, is I realize that this is the standard word for killer whale, but once you this book has teaches you that actually that consists of two words that they've jammed together, blubber and biter. So uh, I, when I translated this book, I translated it as the blubber biter, not the killer whale. Killer whale would be the fluent, correct way of translating it. If you had, the, if I had the proper knowledge of Swedish, I would know that I would be translating this as killer whale, but I'm not. I, apparently, this book has perverted my sense of Swedish, and so therefore I misread it. And I translate it as the blubber biter. Uh, <coughs> huh? Sure. It's a real dog and pony show. Or you get to a word like a standard word like degir, which is the, just means mammals. <coughs> But suddenly the, you start realizing that that's because the word deg and yule, suckle animals. So I translate as suckle animals instead of mammals. Obviously this is wrong. This is not fluent translation. This is improperly being in, improperly influenced by the text. Or you have this word vol repeated over and over again as choice or whale. And when you get a word like walnut, that's just the standard word for walnut. It's impossible not to see there's all this blubbery whale stuff in the walnut now all of a sudden. So the Swedish language itself is ruined. Or a word like uval, which is a standard word for oval, suddenly you realize it consists of u and val, un and whale, so it becomes unwhale. And this kind of neologistic, ambient neologism really infects the reading for me, and so I start seeing it everywhere because it's like paranoid, paranoid reading of constantly breaking down every word. Um, To me, this, I guess to me, the, the model of foreignizing doesn't have anything really to do with it because in the original, my reading of it as a, is not any kind of ideal reader. The ideal reader is possible this is like a very knowledgeable, uh, masterful reader. But in, I think the proper way of reading this, if anything, is to read it improperly, as a, unfluently. It's a book that asks you to perverse the Swedish knowledge. And this is the way for me that opens up a, a, uh, the deformation zone of art and the volatility of language. Um, so I think I'll stop there and let you take over. Okay. Right. To talk about the way in which, first of all, Adriana's, my own, and Johannes's ideas 
both um, meet and divide from each other and what are some of the gray areas between them and then also where like the work that you guys are doing or interested in might hook into or depart from or totally disprove um, all the things that we've been talking about today. So I, I wrote kind of an intentionally shorter talk as well in the hopes that we could talk to each other um, and I hope that'll work out. Um, like I already have some things that I want to ask Johannes and Adriana about, so okay. Will not let my talk get in the way. So my, my talk is called uh, Translation as Transmission in the Deformation Zone. But of course, in translating my own title, I wasn't sure if I wanted in or from the deformation zone. I mean, I guess I decided that these were going to be, this, this paper is a transmission in the deformation zone because I think part of what we're trying to show here and keep pushing is the idea that translation uh, is a mode, once you're thinking in that mode, it's kind of contagious to everyone who comes in contact with that mode, or at least that's our hope as evangelicals for translation. Um, another thing that I want to say before I begin giving my paper is that um, translation has really taken over my life, and I'm not even really a translator. I mean, I have my Aeneid project, but I work on every now and again with my high school Latin, but um, really I'm, a, I'm an activist for translation and, and we have our translation press and I think a lot about translation. I think I'm a theorist of translation maybe even um, without being the full-time translator that some of you probably are and that Johannes really is as well. But at the same time, uh, I find that when I sit down to think about poetry, which is where like I'm normally placed in spectrum, translation is the way I think about poetry. So it, it's thinking about the world from the position of translation changed the way I think about poetry and even let me think about poetry as a medium, which was important to me, uh, to think about whether poetry could be a medium among media um, if poetry could be something that that something else moves through and that if art could work that way too and I realize that um, when I'm thinking that way I'm really using a lot of my translation kind of thinking to think about art so I think that's something that you probably picked up on in Johannes's talk and also in Adriana's introduction that we're tr people who think about translation a lot but our thinking about translation also includes or becomes thinking about art and media um, pretty much all violence, like pretty much all the experiences that feel like us to be experienced. And that is as opposed to the human experience, TM, which is what you usually uh, hear blithely referred to in conversations about poetry and translation. And, and I think we should contest the idea of an or the human experience. When you get that a lot when you read reviews of translation, like this particular poet, you know, I love these translations because now I can see you know, like that this Polish author is showing us the human translation, but all, or human, the human experience, but you know, also so is this Japanese novelist, also that's also the human, the human experience, etc. So if you look for the phrase the human, if you search, you will find the human experience as something that translation is always supposed to testify to, the singular human experience. And translation in all its variety is somehow supposed to continually reference it. And, and that's just to me like kind of an obnoxious thing. Um, and I like variety and variegation. I like contradiction. I, I like things that are superimposed on top of each other that seem to have a lot to do with each other some days and other days seem totally different. I like that irrationality. And I like them better than the human experience. What am I even talking about? I'm just talking about the title. Okay, translation as transmission in the deformation zone because you now are all in the deformation zone for at least this hour. Also, I wear hearing aids, which usually create humorous misunderstandings. Okay, so, <clears throat> because I am a translation occultist, 
I am going to begin with an emblem. That is a translated poem as a kind of alchemical symbol, which will open up the zone of our strange meeting here today with a trembling, uncertain, propulsive, and variegated spastic energy. So the poem I want to start just by reading, like just to kind of like summon this conversation together, is called Flowering Tree. And it's by Isang. And Isang is a Korean modernist, so his dates are 1910 to 1937. You can see he died really young at 26. He died, um, he had a very heroic, uh, art heroic life that involves translation because he, um, the story behind Isang's life is he worked, so he was born in the year of the Japanese occupation, and he grew up and being good at school and good at languages, he worked as a clerk in the Japanese government, but while he, or in the occupying bureaucracy, uh, but while he was working as a clerk, he also became an artist. He kind of caught modernism, which I talk about later, um, from Cocteau, via these same Japanese modernists, because there was a Cocteau craze going on at the time. And um, as a result, his work, and, and when I say that, I am paraphrasing the research of a guy called Walter K. Liu, L-E-W, and um, you should check out his work on Isang. So Isang is spelled Y-I-S-A-N-G. It's a pen name. That's what it's spelled in English. That's its transliteration. Anyway, so our friend Isang was working as a clerk in the government, or in the bureauc government bureaucracy, when he wrote an article for a, basically for a bureaucratic newsletter that included puns that a Korean speaker would hear. And the puns were numbers, but somehow also referenced genitalia, and also, and basically, it took a while for the Japanese to get wind of what had happened, but the kind of homophonic puns that Isang had laced through this bureaucratic newsletter, um, he ended up being put in a um, internment camp, and he died of tuberculosis um, shortly after getting out of the camp. So um, he's an interesting, very interesting modernist uh, figure and a real hero of mine. Let's read his poem, shall we? It's called Flowering Tree by Isang. This is from 1933, and it's translated by Walter K. Liu. And the variegated punctuation and run-ons is all also Isang's like calling card. Dead center of an open field, there is a flowering tree. In the neighborhood, not even one. That flowering tree, with as much ardor as it thought about, its thought about tree opened ardently its blossoms and stood. It cannot go to the tree it thinks about. Wildly I fled for the sake of one flowering tree. I really went that far to make such uncommon mimicry. I just love that as a, like, a cri de coeur there at the end, um, especially for some guy who was snuffed out at 26, but you know, he went that far to make such uncommon mimicry. And um, so uh, I've already given part of my talk. So Isang was born in the year of the Japanese occupation, began in Korea. He labeled himself, this is Isang again, also in Walter K. Liu's translation, quote, a vagrant who slipped into a crack between the centuries with the sole intent of collapsing there. And elsewhere, Isang described himself, I am an outlaw and about to be expelled, squeezed out between the 19th and 20th centuries. But as translation is also a case of bad economics, of battalion smuggling, I have also smuggled translator and scholar Walter K. Liu into this essay already. And so I hope that will signal to you that this is really a choral essay with many ideas coming into and out of harmonious and disharmonious audition. So I wish to present translation as a double-bodied zone, a zone of impossible and incomplete permeations, where personhood is, an, is impersonated, where the jaw that moves is not necessarily, but also not, not necessarily, the spirit that talks. The body of translation is a spirit prosthetic, a listening zone, an area of substance that can vibrate, a medium for a seance, something sacred, something obscene.
One sacred emblem of this dead latitude of translation, this listening zone, is presented in Jean Cocteau's Orphée. So I hope you guys have seen this movie. So here Orpheus sits in his car, he listens to poems coming in through the radio, and the radio is of course receiving, a receiving device for transmissions. And yet that radio seems to utter, it seems to reveal them into the air, where they lodge sublimely in Orpheus's ears, saying transmission, transmission, like Ian Curtis, you're supposed to make an ear curve right there. Thus the supposedly ultimate artist creator Orpheus is remade as a listener, who unmans himself to form a joint body ridiculously with his car. Here, his ear and the radio become almost but not quite identical, and messages are transmitted from death. And they also incorporate Orpheus into the space of death. He's in his car as if he were in a hearse, listening to the rapping on, the, on his own grave. But he's also a recording device, rushed by the voice of death, because he sits there writing down what he hears over the radio. Later, the Furies discover his fraudulent contrivance, precipitating a cascading of destructive events, and these events split open the above-ground life of the movie, and a surreal underworld opens up in a wide female zone. So even in the myth, when in the real in the real myth, when Orpheus emerges from the dead zone, he carries death with him. In the real Greek myth, it is a relief and a release from the carcass of the mortal world when Orpheus can finally have his head ripped off and be dead again. So Orpheus is the second emblem, I guess, here. That listening should be characteristic of this no place, this dead zone, this nada translation, is also instanted by the Korean master poet Kim Hee-soon. So Kim Hee-soon is a contemporary poet um, who I think started publishing in the 90s. And so in Kim Hee-soon's essay, translated by Dom Miche as Princess Abandon. Actually, that sounds wrong, the 80s. So Kim Hee-soon writes about Princess Abandoned, that's the English translation by Delmiche. Kimi Soon speaks of the poet as a female shaman, a paradegi, an abandoned princess of Korean myth, who must go into the place of death to commingle with the dead and make poetry. So of this figure, Kimi Soon writes, and I'm pretty sure this is on your handout as the second quote. Um, it's the third quote down. Inevitably, the performer of the abandoned is expected to have the experience of hearing the spirits of the dead, who are called ghosts, spirits, or gods, in addition to having the experience of going through the, a penance within a life of ordeal, suffering from shame and sickness, or undergoing with her own body a world of illusions. Without this hearing, she is not qualified to be a performer of the abandoned. So obviously what I'm trying to do here is sort of show when we think about translation and we think about this movement through zones and we think about art as something that's received um, as opposed to something that is originated and we're already kind of doing damage to our Western models of what art and the artists are. So that's what I'm trying to show here today is what art looks like, um, what poetry looks like when you look at it from the position of translation um, and, and what kind of a radical reframing that can be. For me, it's a power one. So back to Kimi Soon. So in Kimi Soon's model, um, the abandoned must hear, and she must also move into the void, into a black zone, a listening space in need of hearing and ear. Here's another quote from, um, from Kimi Soon, and you can read these entire essays online without pirating them. They've been put up online, the PDFs. When the woman, I mean in translation, when the woman poet experiences hearing the femininity, she begins to hear the sounds of the inside. At this time, she acknowledges the existence of a voice of the inside that is different from her practical reality. So this is interesting, too, because this is a reworking. When Johannes was trying to talk about um, interiority and how that's always at stake in the discussion of poetry in the West, we think we know what interiority is. We think that's where, female, where, where our feelings are. But here, the existence of a voice of the inside is somehow different from 
just like personal real estate that you happen to carry inside. There's something different about it. Um, and this is what happens. So when she starts hearing, she acknowledges the existence of a voice of the inside that is different from her practical reality. She's overcome with anxiety as well as happiness as she begins to hear the voice of the inside. And she begins to realize that she stands at the center of death rather than the center of life, and that she can not maintain her life if she does not embrace death. She feels as if all the outside is entering the inside, like the way ghosts rush up to the performer. So for me, this is a really powerful um, emblem. I guess it's the third emblem of, of how art can work and how translation can work, of this, and, and what, how it kind of changes the idea of what's inside, what's outside, what are our primary senses, uh, where are the boundaries of the sense, what is origin. It's all kind of becomes inverted when we think about it this way. So now that I put the figure of Orpheus and then the figure of the princess abandoned in front of you, I want to reread the poem Flowering Tree. And I want to like kind of superimpose it on Kimmy Soon's theory of, the of abandon because Kimmy Soon says she begins to realize she stands at the center of death rather than the center of life. And she came and not maintain her life if she does not embrace death. This is Kimmy Soon. She feels as if all the outside is entering the insight, the way ghosts rush up to the performer. So we have this kind of like evacuation of the central uh, speaking place that we value so much in Western culture, and this other thing kind of rushes into it, you know? Um, and that's a model for art in Princess Abandoned. So now I'm going to read Flowering Tree again, and this time I want you to try to grasp. It's kind of got an ungrasp ungraspable cartography to it, but it, that, that is also important. So try to read it again in Walter K. Liu's translation. Dead center of an open field. So it's already a dead center, right? There is a flowering tree in the neighborhood, not even one. That flowering tree with as much ardor as it thought, it thought about tree opened ardently its blossom and stood. It cannot go to the tree it thinks about. Wildly I fled for the sake of one flowering tree. I really went that far to make such uncommon mimicry. And yes, the pronouns are all slippery here, and it's sort of as if like the speaking position is continually like evacuated, and he's like trying to be the tree, right? But then something will happen in the sentence or in the phrase to like push him out of the space that he would otherwise occupy. But somehow, art keeps announcing itself, you know, in that space, in that phrase, the flowering tree. And uh, it was a Zhongwei Che who said that this is, the, you know, another prominent poet of Korea considers this the first modern Korean poem. Um, flowering tree. And there are other translations as well. I'm just kind of a partisan to Walter K. Liu. There you go. Um, so that's Kimi Soon, that's Yi Sang. Um, and this connection I'm making between Yi Sang and, and Cocteau, this idea that Yi Sang caught, he caught modernism through the Cocteau craze that swept Japan, um, even though Yi Sang was in a colonized position. Um, that is also Walter K. Liu's theory, and you can find that online in his, in his, uh, his special issue of the uh, journal Mue, M-U-A-E, which is on Isan, largely on Isan. Okay, so for Cocteau and for Kimi Sun, and I think for Isan, the process of becoming a poet is a process of translation, emphasis, emphasizing on the movement aspect of trans and carrying, carrying oneself out of the moral strata into the dead zone, a place of radical conversion and conjoining simultaneously but instably of one, one's body to art and death. In this dark place, the dominant sense is listening. I want to present the joint mashed up double gendered body of the Orphic Paradigai, because that's a female figure for Kim Isun, but these other guys are male, although Isan was a little more queer, hard to say. He 
well, we can talk, we can gossip about Isang later. I just love him. All right, so anyway, the double gender body of the Orphic Paradigai as the paradigm of the being in translation, a radically inverting zone where the dead can mingle and loss comes rushing back. To be abandoned is to be crowded with others. This is what Johannes and I have called the deformation zone. To enter this zone is not just the work of the translator, but also the translated poet, the reader, a host of illusions, interrelated texts like pulling Cocteau into this conversation today. Um, they're pulled into the magnetic blackness of the new double zone of being in translation. It is this irresistible, fatal attractiveness that allows me to configure this essay from the rotting, conjoined body of Orpheus and the Paradigai and Isan. It should be noted here that zone, a zone etymologically is a girdle. It's a belt, like a girdle, which both blocks and indicates a vulnerability, a permeability. That zone is for girls, or for the unmanned, the double or ambigender, the ambivalent, those who would go in drag. And as the Delphic oracle in Pythia had her tripod, and Orpheus has his radio or his lyre, so the ear must bear its prophetic equipment, its tackle, its stirrups, its hammer, and its anvil. The ear bears a runnel of Stygian ectoplasm where its little waving hairs are made to bear messages. They may transmit like the hair of the graves on the drowned, which is also the seabed. Quote, and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. And, and just while we're talking about it, um, I'm sure you guys know because we're in such a wonderfully uh, classical place of Oxford with that like amazingly obscene statue out front that I just like could not get over today. Um, the name Pythia, you know, where the oracle, the, the Delphic oracle sat, came from Pitho or Pytho, which in myth was the original name of Delphi, because they thought it was a place, it came from the verb to rot. And it refers to the decomposition of the body of a monstrous python after she was slain by Apollo. So the rotting body of the lady snake becomes the zone of female penetration by an oracular knowledge. Um, and the or in the Delphic Oracle, and it's hyper-stylized utterance. So the, the, the Delphic Oracle in Greece speaks from the place where the python rots, um, speaks from the snake place. It's tongued, and it's speaking in snaky tongues. Darkling eye, listen. So in this decomposition zone, on the maiden's tripod, et in Pythia ego, from the seat of the oracle, from northwestern Indiana, which is where we live, in the US Rust Belt, where I wrote this paper, um, now I want to return to Isang and discuss a text which allegorizes or emblematizes this model of translation as a canal zone, an oracle zone, and a dead zone. Not in the sense of emptied of life, but in the opposite sense, a Stygian zone, a zone rife with the dead Elysian field, rushmat and rushlight trafficked, a Pythian necropastoral. So this text I want to talk about is Isang's Nalgi or Wings. But before I can talk about Isang, I have to take another little divagation in my flow here. I hear another voice, and it is Dom Miches. I mentioned her before because she is the American, or the US Korean, I should say, translator of, um, of Kimi Soon. I've been reading her translations of Kimi Soon today, and in her award-winning poetry book, like, so she also is a poet on her, of her own right, and in her own award-winning poetry book about the bilocation of the exile and the translator, Damiche addresses her own father, a journalist, immersing the future in the past. And so, uh, if you flip your page over, there's a little tiny piece of Damiche's own writing. Um, so, this is a way of writing about exile and feeling divorced and, in some ways, twinned with your own dead twin of your past self. So, here's her poem. 
Twin, twin, twin zone. Cameraman, run to my twin, twin zone. A girl's exile excels beyond excess. Essence excels exile. Something happens to the wanted girl. Nothing happens to the unwanted girl. The morning news is exciting. Excessive exile exceeds analysis. Psychosis, my psychosis. Psychosis, her psychosis. Pillar and pillar and file her and exile her. And pillar and pillar till axis and boxes and sexes. So that's just her own work, um, where the language continually produces twins of itself. I asked her about Isan, a poet who is obsessed with mirrors, a Korean moving through the system of the Japanese occupation in the first quarter of the 20th century, a Korean whose twinning and punning in his work eventually led him to be in prison for thought crimes. Um, and she, on Facebook, explained a little bit about Isan. Isan's short, uh, short fiction, December 12, in Korean we say, um, 1212 was serialized. This is an anecdote Don Mead shared with me from February to December 1930 in an important magazine. This is the anecdote I just paraphrased for you. In this magazine put out by the colonial ruling government containing all the colonial policies by top officials, Isang told a few friends after the story appeared in the journal that his about his wordplay. If you say 1212 in Korean, it sounds like a swear word for the genitals. The swearing implicitly directed at the Japanese colonial rule of Korea. So this is a story. Um, so Isang takes tremendous work, uh, risk with his wordplay, even if the Japanese officials don't get it. And so there's this, there's this um, element of twinning and the illicit, the illicit twins of homophons having kind of like a, uh, both a sexual and a political force to it too. So I'm, I'm into these mysterious and powerful uncanny twins. From the past, Isang is a radio signaling to us with his illicit numbers. His illicit numbers were both a thought and a crime, as all art should be, deployed in translation, released into a system of translation, and a cascade of retranscriptions, like a wide black highway of death, running to the future, a death as a glyphy, queer, encoded dynamic space, remaking the approved Japanese publication as a space where Korean becomes illicitly audible, but only when fed through an elaborate playback device, an ear fluent in Korean, an ear packed with Korean fluid, an ear which transmits by translation. So again, the critic and translator Walter Liu, and I'm mentioning these names over and over again for a reason, because I, I want you to know these names and to go off and to look these guys up and like, use them to make your own theories about translation. So the critic and translator Walter K. Liu has argued for the queerness of Isang as encoded in his work via the translation of images and motifs from Cocteau. Cocteau's work gave Isang, and this is all Walter Liu, a, a way to triangulate an unpronounceable content of his own. Being in translation is a making audible. Here is the political implication of my model. It is the provisional and the provincial, the blacked out and the occupied, that are always forced to constantly translate. Forced out of the zone of the living and into the space of death, the dead zone, where art is suddenly audible and ready for translation, Isan conceived an art world there, a zone of preposthumous living, which outlived his mortal lifetime and is mutant and vital today. Um, I'll just say that again. It's the, it is the provisional and the provincial um, the blacked out and the occupied that are forced to constantly translate. So, <clears throat> because Isang died at 26, he is really like one of these young posthumous um, poets who is almost posthumous before he even began, right? Um, and he has an almost fertile posthumousity, an almost female fertility in his posthumousity. Um, I find that embodied in all of Isang's work, but especially his most famous work, which is the novella Wings from 1936. Yet in Wings, the dead body is actually Isang's own, as in the Johannes book, in Johannes's book that Adriana quotes, uh, the character has the name Isang. The dead body is Isang's own, or that of his double. The narrator is called Isang. And so the system of infernal twinship, which makes the plural bodied body of being in translation, which I also call art, is already in place. 
So in, East, in this novella, Wings, the husband speaker is inert, almost always asleep. His sex worker wife goes out and comes back to the space of the story, a space where food is delivered in bowls and pocket money is piled on his pillow. It is as if he is not a live speaker at all, but a dead body tended to in his own tomb. Yet this pious tending of the grave is queer by the fact that it is a sex worker tending to a cuckolded husband who is in fact still alive. And I'm using this term sex worker, it's not clear, it's definitely, she's definitely entertaining men, she's definitely making money doing that. There's not really a name for that in the story. We would sort of say sex worker, but, um, which is why there's still a cuckolding element, even though it is her profession, but there's still sort of a sense that he is being kind of cuckolded um, and that that's kind of erotic as well. So it's not only, oh, she's a sex worker and he's cuckolded, I wouldn't make that comment. That's coming out of the story's kind of delicate strange erotics where he is basically lying there in a tomb and she brings him money at uh, food and money as if as if leaving it at his grave so uh okay so the ghost of this necrophilic relationship then is between the author and his speaker a speaker who is vivified or vitiated on contact with the other beings and materials in the story and further animated by the act of speaking the story itself for the author Isang, to script the speaker Isang is an act of imperfect animation, a very temporary and dubious inspiration. It's worth, it is worth trying to counterfeit yourself. That's a quote from the story, our speaker in tones, much like the voice on the radio in Cocteau's Orfe. Your creation would be sublime and conspicuous among the ordinary products you have never seen. But as in Cocteau's Orfe, it is the pact with self-destruction, the decision to take up residence in the half-rotten dead zone that allows the everyday to be translated, to emit its spectacular transmissions. Um, so here's the second quote. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, it's like by becoming, by being this kind of dead, fig, dead alive figure, um, he becomes a conduit for finding the remarkable in the everyday and, and becoming a translator. So it's the second paragraph here that I quote. Um, it has become a major recreation of mine that I promptly go to the front room in the morning when my wife goes out and watch various bottles on her makeup chest brilliantly glimmer with the sunbeam trickling in through the eastern window I opened. So like that's, that's an activity for this guy. It's to sort of be the means by which Liz is observed um, to be a medium for the light, making a medium of the bottles. Um, and again, these translations are for Ang, by An Junyo, so um, that's where the English is coming from. Um, so the final image in the novella in which our dead exhumed hero finds himself on top of the Mitsukoshi department store at noon brings into pulsing fullness the paradoxically superimposed opposites of presence and absence, real and fake, authentic and artificial, the real body and the more real um, artificial one, like the artificial one is more desirable, more real than his actual body. Um, everything is kind of layered up in these last couple of paragraphs I'm going to read you, which is the end of the novella. A siren wailed, and now, so he's up on top of a department store. He's actually like got the gumption up to leave the house. A siren wailed, announcing noon. It was gl a glorious noon, people vigorously whirling around amid the commotion of glass, steel, marble, money, ink. My armpits suddenly itched. Ah, it was where my imitation wings had split out. The wings that I had no longer. I think that's a great couple clauses, like, the, you know, this, this amazing kind of, uh, fantastic, fanciful claim. My armpits suddenly itched. That, it would be hard to make that less fanciful. 
And then suddenly this fanciful claim, ah, it was where my imitation wings had split out. Not just wings, but they're already imitations. The wings that I had no longer, so they've already like deleted. And now the translator actually uses the word deleted yet. Next. The deleted phantasms of hope and ambition flashed in my mind like the flipping pages of a pocket dictionary. And I love this arrival at the pocket dictionary too. It's like everything is like folded back into language itself. So we have this like very mundane first clause. We have this amazing apparition of wings, but they are again imitations. So they have real and imitation wings. And then they're gone, but they're present almost like, like an early cinema scope kind of thing trope in all in the whole or like the flipping pages of a flip book all through the rest of the image all through the rest of the paragraph um, and that's to me an amazing paragraph and then I stopped my pacing and wanted to shout wings spread out again fly 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 let me fly once more let me fly just once more end of the sentence. and that's the end of the novella with him up on this um, the top the roof of this big commercial building in the middle of the day and this kind of kind of breathtaking feeling of <clears throat> perhaps he's about to jump or even is falling while, while these thoughts are going by. For me, it feels like maybe the end of um, Paul's case or something by Willie Cather, if you guys know that story. So, so concludes Wings by Isang in the translation of An Jung Hyo. But what would it mean to fly on the there, not there, phantasmal erased wings of a dictionary off the roof of the Mitukoshi department store? As material and immaterials, from death to death, on the wings of that most modern of accoutrements, the pocket dictionary. My goal in this paper has not been to have one thesis, but to put a series of ideas in euphonies in motion and to let them run in and out of sync, joining up and forming clashing and incredible bodies. Orpheus and the Paradigai, Kakto and Isang, Damichoi and Kimisun. This paper embodies the rotting body of the deformation zone, a canal zone, a dead zone, a zone of being in translation, where the dead become animated by contact with the living, but the living make an erotic aesthetic pact with the dead. Wings spread out again. Let me just fly once more. Let me fly just once more. Appropriately for the infernal logic of translation, when I say dead, I mean vital. I mean animated. I mean anima itself. I do not differentiate between translator and translated in the deformation zone because both must run to the twin zone. Both are imperfectly co-joined in this space and subject to the currents and torrents of animation thus generated. This is being in translation, a bi-gendered, double-bodied, posthumous, rotten sight of listening, reception, and playing back, a zone of unpredictable cascades where the paradigai inverts a marginalization so complete that it generates radical, black effects which carry their mutating ramifications backwards and forwards, a girdle or zone which links the improbable past of a spectacular future already riven with flecks of the dead, their skin flecks and bone chips, their dental records and hair samples, their wings and their pocket dictionaries, their impossible numerology, their transmissions. Well, that's it for me. So thank you very much. I feel like I threw a lot of ideas at you.